Well, guys, I know uh, it's been uh, a hard week for many people, and um, I know many people are battling illnesses. Uh, I know many people are, you know, with the new uh, mass mandates that came out this week. That was really difficult for, for many people. Uh, as Joe prayed for, we, we think about just the upheaval we're hearing about in Afghanistan uh, right now and how the Taliban is uh, were reported moving around and um, people are trying to flee. Um, we think about the earthquake in Haiti. Uh, there's just a lot on our hearts. And so um, I say all to say, it's just really good to be together. It's really important to be together and to support each other, to lean on each other, uh, to pray, uh, to hear God's word and together. And so um, just with all that in the backdrop, that's what's so amazing. We said to come to God's word tonight and hear from him. And so that's what we're going to do right now. And, and if you have a Bible, if you would open up to Luke chapter 16, uh, we're in verses 19 uh, through 31 this evening, and um, uh, I'm here to tell you that we have two more weeks that we're going to spend in the Gospel of Luke for now. We're going to go through chapter 17, and I'm excited that next week uh, our very own Eric Wood is going to be preaching in Luke 17, so I've been begging him to preach since he's, I've been here, and he keeps refusing, but he's finally doing it, so I'm just kidding. No, I'm excited to have Eric preach, and then the week after that, Dan Stump is going to be preaching as well to cap us off in Luke 17, so I'm really thrilled to hear from these, these guys, these godly men who God has gifted to do this. And then um, starting in September, we're going to um, be going through the book of Daniel this fall. And I'm really uh, excited about that, mildly intimidated, but also really excited about going through the book of Daniel as we um, see what it looks like for us to live faithfully at the margins of society as Christians. And um, I think it'll be really beneficial for us to go through a book like that. Uh, then we're going to go through an Advent series, and then, Lord willing, the plan is that in, we're going to go back into Luke, Luke chapter 18, beginning of the new year, and that should take us right up through Passion Week and Easter, and I'm really pumped about that. We should be landing on Jesus' trial, death, and resurrection right on that Passion Week, uh, capping it off with the last chapter of Luke after Easter, that beautiful story of the road to Emmaus. So, um, I'm excited about our time in God's Word and where we're headed in these different things. I hope you are as well. Uh, but tonight we are in Luke chapter 16, ending this section. And uh, that's important to realize that it is a section. Uh, context for this is, is really important because if you think back to Luke chapter 15, uh, we saw the story of the prodigal son who uh, took his father's inheritance and went and wasted all of that inheritance and he became in a desperate situation. He goes, maybe I'll go home. Maybe my father will receive me back as a son. And, and his father does. It's a powerful story of grace and forgiveness. And then in, in chapter 16, uh, just right there in front of you, uh, Jesus begins this chapter by telling a parable that begins much like the one in our parable tonight. He says, there was a rich man. And then at the beginning of our parable tonight, there was a rich man. Right? And so we, we've seen uh, Jesus talking about what we do with our wealth. And at the beginning of chapter 16, we see a story about a rich man who wasted his master's wealth, but shrewdly made the best of his moments before he wound up looking for a new job. He took, care of, he took the last hours he had, and he, he acted shrewdly to make sure he was provided for. And Jesus talks about that, that there's going to be a settling of accounts in our own lives. So this parable Jesus told to his disciples. We, we saw that being in chapter 16, he says to his disciples. But then in chapter uh, 16, verse 14, if you look down there, it says the Pharisees were overhearing this story about the dishonest manager. And they were lovers of money. And they ridiculed Jesus. 
But then in verse 15, he says, and he said to them, right? So he speaks now to the Pharisees, and we must understand he's continuing to talk directly to the Pharisees through the rest of this chapter until verse 1 of chapter 17 where it says, and he said to his disciples. So you must understand here that he has, he has the Pharisees in mind primarily when he's telling this, this parable that we're looking at here tonight, how they were lovers of money. Nick Stumbo preached last week about the text in verses 16 through 18 about this Old Testament law and prophets and how um, those were still in effect and how uh, that basically these Pharisees were people who would say, oh yeah, we stand on that word. We love Moses and the prophets. And it's with all this happening that Jesus tells us this final parable in this section. A parable, uh, let's just remember, is a non-historical story. This didn't happen, actually, but it's illustrating very true realities about our lives and about the kingdom of God. And this parable in particular, though, it's serving for us tonight as a warning. It ends abruptly, and it really leaves that effect of being a warning um, I don't know if you remember, uh, maybe you weren't alive, I don't know, I wasn't at least, but before the 1950s, cigarettes were promoted as good for your health. Remember this? There's like an ad I, I pulled up on the internet, you know, like, they're like, hey, doctors use camel, you know, that kind of thing. And it was promoted as good for your health. And, and since then, people have really changed their opinion about this idea, right? So now we have these warning labels on cigarette packs, right, that says this can lead to cancer. Basically, cigarettes can kill you. There's a warning on every, every package. And so you can look at that warning and you, could, you get to decide how truthful you think that is and if you should heed that warning. Right? That's how warnings work. But they're, they're actually meant for your good. Like if you're at the Oregon coast and you're asleep in the middle of the night and you hear that tsunami siren going off, right? You don't get mad, I'm guessing. The tsunami siren is intended to wake you up. You're not supposed to sleep through the siren. It's intending for you to wake up, consider your surroundings, and to flee and take refuge in a safe place. Why? Because a tsunami might be coming, right? Hopefully it doesn't happen. Right? But that's what it serves them for, right? That's what a warning does. It's a loving plea to consider something very serious. And that's exactly what this is doing. So this is what we see here in our story tonight. We see two different uh, real sections of the story. First of all, we see in this warning a reversal of fortunes. And then secondly, we see this plea to listen. A reversal of fortunes, a plea to listen, as Jesus uses this parable as a warning for us. So let's read together the reversal of fortunes, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we see two people. We should pause here and ask ourselves, who would you rather be? Who would you rather be? The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. 
And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. J.C. Ryle, when commenting on this story, said, a person standing in this world does not reveal their standing before God. A person standing in this world does not reveal their standing before God. See these two people. We introduced the rich man in verse 19, and we know that he's rich by the description of the things that he wears and how luxuriously he eats, his eating habits. I mean, the fact that he's clothed in purple would signal to us a a royal garment of sorts. This is like a kingship sort of color that you would even wear in a robe fashion. And then the verse, the phrase there in verse 19 is literally capped off by saying he's enjoying himself. That's what it literally means. He's enjoying himself by eating sumptuously every day. Now, don't lie, you haven't used the word sumptuously in a while, okay? If you have, you're holding out on us, you should be letting us know you're way smarter than that by dropping it all as much time as you can, okay? So, sumptuously, for the rest of us, right, we're like, what does that even mean? It literally just means doing something in a way that looks expensive. So, he's doing this eating and dressing every day in a way that looks expensive because it is, And it gets even to describing something in this rich man's house in verse 20, because although it just says he has a gate, which might sound nice, it's not a white picket fence sort of gate. It's it's an impressive gate. That's what the word actually is referring to. It's an impressive gate that would be in front of a very large structure. So he has a very nice house. And then in verse 20, in the contrasting way, who do we find at his gate? A poor man named Lazarus who was laid there. His name literally means he whom God has helped. He whom God has helped. This is the only instance in all of the parables where a character is given a name. That's really important, actually. It's important that he is because Jesus wants us to understand that this poor man was a believer. He he was a Christian, you could say. He's a man whom God has helped. He's God's man. God knows his name. God knows his name. I mean, think about that. The rich man would have been well-known and famous in a society like this. The poor man would have been forgotten and nameless. I mean, people would say about the rich man, hey, did you hear about Jack Alexander? You know, and they're like, oh, yeah, the guy on the house, you know, the guy with that house and all the sumptuous eating and stuff, right? I mean, people would know exactly who you're talking about. But if you asked, hey, have you, you know, heard about the, the poor man by the gate or whatever? Like, yeah, what's his name? I don't know. It's not even worth remembering. But this is how we think about people and significance in society. Yet Jesus here gives a name for the poor man and no name for the rich man. God knows his name, though. Does God know your name? Does God know your name? I mean, it's a powerful thing to, to have someone know your name. Randomly, I was walking by um, Hinson Church a couple weeks ago by their coffee shop, Eastside Coffee Bar and Workspace, and I walked down the road and I heard someone yell out, Josh, I looked over, I did not know who this person was. He goes, we met seven years ago at Mount Angel Abbey outside Salem. And I was like, I was there. You know, like literally, barely could remember the person. It's sad I don't remember his name right now, honestly. Shameful. I'm like, I was floored for hours, just like, how did this guy even remember my name? You know, he, he remembered my name on the spot. It just blew me away. 
I remember when we were planting our church in Corvallis, uh, for the first couple of years especially, I would have people come to church, I would meet them, I would learn their name, they'd come back the next week, I would say, hey, um, Amber, or whatever her name was, you know, how's it going again? And then they would keep coming back to church, and so many people told me, I keep coming back because you remembered my name. They're like, I've never had a pastor remember my name before. I was like, that's really amazing, but that's what makes you come back. Being known by name is a really uh, significant thing for us. So does God know your name? Like this man. This is a powerful thing to know God and for him to know you. I mean, just think about how this relates even to the prophet Jeremiah in chapter chapter 9 of that uh, book where he says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Verse 21, we find him, this poor man here with this unfulfilled wish of desiring to be fed. So whatever fell from the table was, was just, was needed to be cleaned up, just like a dog. That's what he was hoping for. That's what he hoped was his feast, his sustenance, just like a dog. And we must not forget that in this time, dogs were not thought of man's best, as man's best friend, right? I mean, these aren't like your pets or something like that. These dogs were impure and seen as gross scavengers. This is the end of the description of this poor man. And what's the end of the description? We see these dogs licking his sores. This is just getting to the height of this man's misery. Even the dogs tormented him. So Jesus wants us to understand that the rich man continually neglected Lazarus and that the rich man even knew Lazarus is his name. You see that in verse 24? And he did all this while feasting sumptuously. What a contrast of life on this earth, which sets you up for the shocking reversal. Verse 22, notice, Lazarus was not even buried. Jesus says that instead he was carried by angels to Abraham's side, a place of honor, none other than Abraham, the father of Israel's people, right? Father of Israel's side. The same patriarch that every Pharisee, every Jew would revere. Jesus says, this poor man died and has entered God's presence. He even has close fellowship with Father Abraham. So notice though, for the rich man, he too dies, like you and I, we all will. But even in death, he was treated differently than the poor man because we're told that he was buried. But where does he wind up? It's Hades. This is the same word in the Old Testament that you see translated Sheol. It's the place of the dead, the place of the unrighteous dead. It is the contrast to heaven, God's presence, Abraham's side. So we have these two realities that people enter upon death that are not on this earth. You have the reality of heaven, you have the reality of hell. Both places are depicted as conscious places. One person's condition is horrible. And if you want to know what this man's condition was like, you could at minimum look at what Lazarus is going through on this earth and the torment that he experiences. And you go, it's at least that. It's at least that kind of misery. The rich man is tormented. Verse 23, if you look there, while in Hades, the rich man sees into the place where Abraham and Lazarus are, and where are they? They are far away. One in Hades, one in God's presence. Think about this, guys. The poor man had only one thing. He had faith in God. Though if you were to spot these people on the street, you would think one of these men had favor from God and the other one was cursed by God. And I wonder which one you would think is which. They both share the same fate. 
death, but death isn't the end. It's depicted here by Jesus as the beginning. One person who had everything now has nothing. One who had nothing now has everything. Let's just be honest for a second, though. We don't, we don't like to speak of hell, do we? We don't like to think about it. And some people, uh, even calling themselves Christians, deny the existence of hell. But it's something that Jesus talks more about than anybody else in the Scriptures. So much so that D.A. Carson uh, once said, to say there is no hell is to call Jesus a liar because he talked about it so much. Now, to be clear here, this, this parable is not building, Jesus is not building out an entire doctrine on the reality of hell. We must keep that in mind. Um, but we do ourselves no favor if we deny the reality of what's happening here and what's being said here. We, we must be clear that even when we talk about hell, as Christians, we should never be talking about this in some sort of gleeful way as if we, you know, enjoy this or something like that. No, we talk about hell uh, very somberly and with great weightiness as we share the truth, hopefully with a tear in our eye. So what does this serve? Well, again, it serves as a loving warning, just like the cigarette label, just like the tsunami siren. This is a loving warning. God loves you, so he warns you. In verse 24, he calls out to Abraham then, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, right? Which is so interesting, right? Because here's the one who was merciless, and now he wants mercy. But he won't get it because the time for mercy is over. I mean, we saw this same ending sort of idea at the parable at the beginning of this chapter. There's going to be a settling of accounts, right? That's what we see here. Look at the mercy he's desiring. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So the same Lazarus who longed to be fed by the crumbs from the table is now being asked by the man who he was hoping to get the crumbs from to come and simply dip a little bit of water on his tongue. Because it is astonishing the level of denial, the level of out of touch with reality you see here from this man. Obviously, on the one hand, the man is depicted as understanding that he is in torment. He's saying, I'm in agony. But on the other hand, he's absolutely blind to what has actually happened to him. He still thinks that he's in charge. Right? He's still holding on to his old status, his old place, his old position. Tell that poor man to go and do this for me. What a contrast. What a reversal. I mean, the heights and the depths of the contrast are pushed to the extremes in verse 25 when Abraham calls out to the rich man, child. What does he say? In your lifetime, you received your good things. That's what you wanted. That's what you got. Then later he describes Lazarus's horrible life. Now, Lazarus is receiving what he's been waiting for. Lazarus is in the presence of God, and God is comforting him. This is the great promise and the great warning. I mean, remember, Luke wrote this entire gospel, right? And we think back to last summer, we looked at Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26, where Jesus has this famous teaching on the plain, right? Sermon on the plain. And what did he say? He said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. That's what he told him in the parable. 
Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You shall want just a drop of water. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Verse 26, Jesus says, besides all this, besides the fact that for God's justice sort of reasons, why Lazarus won't go and give you the water, there's a fixed chasm. The situation you find yourself in, rich man, is irreversible. This is the real horror of his situation. His situation is eternal. If there's a chasm that is fixed upon our death, you guys, and we cannot cross it. So what's the parable doing? Well, the parable is designed to have the Pharisees reflect on how they respond to people like Lazarus. So it's the same for us. It's designed to have us reflect on how we respond to people like Lazarus. A compassionate heart, you guys, sees need and moves to help. If we find it difficult to help someone that is in our path that has actual need, then this parable actually exposes the hard quality in our heart that God is desiring to soften. And when I, when I hear this week about the horrors of what's going on in Afghanistan, and you, you read about the Christians in these house churches and how um, they're being threatened, you better leave or we're going to kill you, and they're saying, no, we will remain. You think about all the need there. You think of Haiti, the most the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, another earthquake yesterday, you know, or you consider the own people in your own neighborhood and the stuff they're going through, or the person in your path or the person at your work or the person at your school and, and just people that you see who have actual need. What does my heart do in that moment, right? Am I living my life, right? Constantly, habitually looking in, in, in. How does this affect me? What do I want? What do I need? Or I'm a person who is free from myself and sees the need and looks out and out and out. I mean, here I am living for your glory. I mean, can we say that? This was the issue for the rich man. So the chasm is fixed, and so because he hears the chasm is fixed, the story shifts into this plea for us to listen. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So this rich man sees the reversal of his fortunes and he comes to grip with his new conclusive state, and what does his mind run to? To help others who might end up like him. And in verses 27 to 28, we see that he still wants Lazarus to do his bidding, to go and warn his brothers to act shrewdly just like the dishonest manager did back at the beginning of this chapter. And so what's the implication there? He says, I have a bunch of brothers, and they're trampling on the poor just like I did. And they live in all these kinds of ways. Do you know what? They need a proper warning. They need to witness a miracle. That's what they need. And you see what this rich man knows now that his five brothers need to do in order that they don't end up where he is. What does he, what does he know that they need? What does he know that he needed? Verse 30 ends, they will repent, right? He thinks that if they see Lazarus 
If they see the poor man who is now rich, if they see the tormented guy who is now comforted, risen from the dead, they will repent. We should be thinking back again to the beginning of Luke, right? Luke chapter 3. What does John the Baptist say to people who are coming out and wanting to get baptized? He says what? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Right? See how, how Luke is, is piecing all this together in, in, for us in this gospel account. These brothers needed to repent and produce fruit in keeping with repentance and not just go, hey, I got Abraham. Right? I'm an, I'm an Israelite. Right? But repentance has a fruit to it, right? And so they are basically then to use their worldly wealth to help people like Lazarus instead of feasting sumptuously every day. It's to take what they have, to consider how gracious and generous their God has been to them, and to see people in their path and go, how can I help? I mean, do you you see, the rich man now understands that his fate was not based on the fact that he was rich. It's based by his lack of repentance. His actions reveal a heart that has never been made tender by the mercy of God. And that's how it works. Any of us who have ever experienced the mercy of God, what does it do to you? It makes you a merciful person, doesn't it? It, You can't experience the mercy of God and leave unchanged. It won't leave you the same. It's like the age-old Mack truck illustration, right? Like if I came stumbling in here late, I was supposed to be preaching, and I was like, hey guys, I'm really sorry that I'm late. I got hit by a semi out there going 60 miles an hour, but I'm, I'm cool, you know, sorry, I'm late, but let's get started, right? You would immediately go, what? You're a liar, right? Just tell me why you're late, right? You're clearly lying. Why? Because if I got hit by a semi truck at 60 miles an hour, I probably wouldn't be standing in front of you, let alone thinking or speaking, those kinds of things. I would at least have a scratch on me or something, right? So, so we would know that. We know that because of the weight and the gravity and the grandness of a semi-truck going that speed, if you get hit by it, it's not going to leave you the same. In the same way, when I think of the enormity and the grace and the mercy of God, and I receive that in my life and experience that, it's not going to leave me the same, will it? So we learn something really important here about repentance, you guys, that we have to get straight. Repentance isn't praying, just words of confession merely. It's not merely even just asking for forgiveness. Repentance is believing in God and then living in a way that images Him, in a way in which He has designed us to live. So since God is a generous God, then repentance means that I confess my selfishness and I live generously. So repentance isn't just asking for forgiveness, then living in my own comfort. Do you see this? Right? Repentance isn't merely something spoken, it's something lived. Repentance isn't merely heard. Repentance is seen. Repentance is bearing fruit in our lives. It should. So much so that I I should be picking the fruit off my life, the the character and the actions, and I examine, I go, is this like Christ? Is this like Christ? Is this like Christ? That's what this looks like. I mean, this is why John wrote in his letter to the, in 1 John, we went through back when I first moved here. He, He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John says it can't happen. 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This is what this looks like. We're not saved because of our repentance. We, we understand that. But we, we are saved only because of Christ and what he's done. So repentance doesn't save us, but you can't come to Jesus and be saved if you don't repent. And if I don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that should warn me that maybe I'm not following Christ. So the rich man understands his fate. It was not because he was rich. It's because he didn't repent. So how, we, so how will we come to a place then where we are convinced that we need to repent? That's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what this debate is that ensues in verse 29. What does it say? Look down there. Jesus says that Abraham responds. Uh, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. They're still speaking, basically. They should listen. This is a reference to the Old Testament, right? The entirety of the Old Testament which the New Testament testifies about when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, uh, remember the sacred writings. They're able to make you wise unto salvation and faith in Jesus Christ, right? So the Old Testament, you hear the gospel in it. Verse 30, the rich man doesn't think the Bible's enough and so he looks at Abraham and he goes, no, that's not gonna work. That's not how it works, Abraham. If only someone comes back from the dead, that's the only thing that'll cause him to repent. And then in verse 31, the story ends abruptly. And in turn tells us the takeaway point that Jesus has been driving to this whole time. If they don't hear what the Old Testament scriptures say, if they won't listen to Moses, if they won't listen to the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone, not just Lazarus, but someone, should rise from the dead. They won't become convinced. It's hard to convince people, right? I mean, we, we, we try to convince people all the time. And we think we're doing a good job of it. We are like explaining things. I mean, I try to convince people baseball is the best sport in the world all the time. And people, I explain it. People are like, you're just wrong, okay? All the time, I labor at this, you know? I mean, I could think years ago, I was uh, just grossed out completely by LaCroix, you know? And people are always like, hey, LaCroix is awesome. You have to try LaCroix. And they would explain things. And I was just like, no, I need a miracle, right? I need something. And uh, I'll confess that I've come around, right? I can enjoy LaCroix now. But for me, it was seeing my need to limit my sugar intake, okay? And I was like, hey, it's better than nothing. That was literally the, um, the answer there. And I'm not here saying LaCroix is awesome, but it's sufficient now in my life, okay? Um, right? It's hard to become convinced, even the most basic things in life. I mean, we always feel like we need more than words of someone's testimony, you try to tell your kid or something, don't do that, and they'll like, I'll figure it out on my own. Right? But Jesus says, we don't need a miracle, you guys. We become convinced by hearing God's word, which reveals our need to repent and live life God's way. The irony is, is that Jesus would actually raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. You read about it in John chapter 11 and 12. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and the Pharisees hear about it. The Pharisees see it, and what do they do? Do they go, oh, no, they plot to kill him from that point forward. I love how Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He refers to that great scene in Revelation where people from all tongues, tribes, and nations are singing before the throne in heaven. And he goes, and they were singing a new song before the throne. In order to learn that new song, you must hear the melody of the voice of Christ in the gospel. You got to hear it. If you think you're going to be singing that song someday that's worshiping the Lamb, 
I don't hear the voice of Christ now. Uh, I'm not thinking clearly. See, the Pharisees are tone deaf. So let's consider tonight this great question then of Jesus, what will convince you? What will convince you? How do we become convinced? There's the key word here, listen, hear. Verse 31, do you see the connection? What does it say? If they do not hear, neither will they be convinced. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is pretty remarkable. Jesus is actually saying, even if you were standing outside the tomb, you saw the stone rolled away, and I stepped out, and you saw the scars in my hands and all that, and said, wow, what a miracle. Incredible. Supernatural. That wouldn't do it. You actually need Moses. You need the prophets. You need Scripture to explain what just happened. Why did that happen? I'm sorry, we must admit we're not going to be able to change, you guys, just by our act of will. We know that. We try to do that all the time. We can't just change by trying. We can't just change by becoming scared. We can't change by even becoming amazed. Jesus says you have to go to Scripture and hear why I died, why I rose. Why did I do that? So let's go to the prophets. What does it say? Prophet Isaiah talks about the suffering servant. Right? He, he, he was abused. He was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He paid the price for our sin. And we see him on the cross. He's quoting the Psalms. And what does he say when he's hanging on the cross? He doesn't say, my God, my God, these nails hurt. He doesn't say, my God, my God, I can't breathe anymore, right? My God, my God, the spear is really painful, right? My God, my God, the thorns are really uncomfortable. No, do you see what he says? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you're never going to have your heart utterly changed in repentance, unless you see what Jesus went through for you. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones used to tell a story, an illustration. He goes, you know, if I came home from work and you were standing there waiting for me, and while you were waiting, the mailman came and you saw a bill in my name and you paid for it, he says, yeah, I just, I just paid it for you, no big deal. He goes, how excited would you be? How excited would you be? He goes, well, it depends, right? You have to figure it out. If it was just you're paying for postage on something or whatever, or maybe it's like three bucks or whatever, you're like, oh, thanks. That was really nice of you, man. Thanks for doing that. But if the bill was the IRS saying you owe 10 years of back taxes and we're going to take everything, and he paid for it, in other words, you guys, you have no idea whether you should shake his hand give them a hug, take them out for dinner, or fall on the ground and kiss their feet. You never know until you know how much they paid, how great the cost, how great the sacrifice. In other words, if I don't believe in the reality of hell, I can't see and hear all that Christ went through for me. And so Jesus says to us, you must listen to Moses and the prophets. You must listen to the Bible. You must listen. That's the plea. It's not 
and even enough to witness someone come back from the dead. You could have been there and seen him rise from the dead, but if you don't know why, if you don't know why the king of heaven, who was clothed with the finest clothes and more wealth than this world can hold, why he who was divinely rich crossed the chasm of heaven to earth and became poor so that we who are poor, poor in our spirit, knowing that we need repentance, so that we who are poor might become actually rich like Lazarus was. If we don't know why Jesus would be stripped of his clothes and people would gamble for his robe, if we don't know why he would be beaten to the point of not having sores but wounds, and it's by those wounds that I experience whole healing. If I don't know why he was the one who didn't just give some scraps to me off his table, but he gave to those who desired to be fed the bread of life, his very best, his own life, so that through him I could feast with him forever one day. If I knew that he has entered the place of the dead, he's crossed the chasm and entered the grave, but he has risen, he's the king. Do you see? And when we believe and trust in him, when we experience that kind of mercy and that kind of generosity, that makes us a new kind of people. It makes us people bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do we get this? This is like discipleship 101, right? Whoever you spend time with will shape you into a certain kind of person, won't it? I mean, I, in a really dumb way. I used to hang, hang out with my former associate pastor all the time, and I don't know why we ate ice cream together a lot, which you can take it or leave it, right? We eat ice cream often. And he used to always eat it with, a, he does, with a baby spoon. And the first time he did that, I was like, you're ridiculous. What are you doing? And he explains why and how he can enjoy it longer and all this stuff. And I'm like, you're crazy. The longer we ate ice cream together, I was like, oh, I'll try it. And then I tried it. And now I eat ice cream with a baby spoon, right? You become like the people you hang out with, don't you? My, my son, uh, 12-year-old son, he always says, good point, good point. Now I say good point. I'm always like, yeah, good point, good point. Michael Haywood is in our church. He's become a good friend with, uh, of mine over the years, last year. He's in my men's group. Michael, I haven't, sorry, Michael, I didn't tell you to say this, but anyways, um, he always goes, that's right, that's right. And now I go, that's right, that's right. I always do that. And I'm like, man, Michael does that. Tucker does that. I'm eating with a baby spoon. What am I doing, right? We become who we spend time with. This is true in every way of our lives. If you spend time with really critical people, you become a critical person. If you spend time with people who are just always angry, always slandering people, you, you begin to do that. We could think of all the negative ways, but there's all the positive ways too. If you want to become more humble, spend time with humble people. People who are dying to themselves for the sake of the other. They're thinking less of themselves and more about the whole, Right? Your community shapes you, but more than anything, your God shapes you, and who you believe God is will shape you. So if you and I spend time with the real Jesus, we become like him, become generous like him. Not a cheap generosity, but a costly generosity. I mean, even this, this week, I, we learned this, that the street we live on, we're still new to the block, they, I guess they all do garage sales on the same weekend. And we didn't want to do one, but my kids really wanted to. So we said, yeah, you could take some of your things and go outside and try to sell them. And they did well. They made quite a bit of money, okay? And it was great. But what happens whenever we see our neighbors have garage sales, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this. It's always been the case for us over the years. We always have neighbors come over and they go, hey, 
I don't want this, but I think you would love it. And they give us these things. And I'm like, sweet, thank you. I have an errand now. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. I walked down the other day and there's all this huge box of stamps on our table. And I was like, what are these stamps for? My wife's like, our neighbor thought we'd like it. And I'm like, great, cool. This is awesome, right? So we're not minimizing the generosity, but we see that kind of generosity, right? That's a generosity that says, I don't want this anymore. You should have it. You're still giving. But it's a cheap kind of generosity, if I can call it that way. See, costly generosity is very different. Costly generosity is where I give something I want. I even give something I maybe need so that you can be benefited. It's exactly what Christ did. So guys, who are we in this parable? We actually have an answer. We are the five brothers. We are the five brothers. Do you see it? I'm supposed to listen. Every time we open the Bible, we stand before the gates of heaven and hell. If we don't listen to the Bible, nothing else will do. The danger is these Pharisees knew the Bible inside and out, yet they loved money. So as the five brothers we ask, is my ear attuned to God's word? Is it making me into a person who is self-giving, who's generous, who's compassionate, or am I claiming to hear and know God's word, yet I'm holding on to another God like the Pharisees? It could be money, it could be being well-liked, it could be my way of life, it could be the me, 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 whatever the me stuff is. Or if you're a Christian and you find yourself convicted in believing this, or if you're not a Christian and you find yourself believing in this, I want to encourage you, don't ignore the voice of God. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. His arms are open to you. This is how it's always worked for all of us, how we hear, how we believe. You ask someone how they came to faith, what do they say? Someone told me about Jesus. Someone told me. Someone told me. It's by hearing the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What a story of great reversal. That, that, that is meant to have us hear this plea to listen. It's a story for great comfort for some of us who've put our hope in that life to come. In the day that we will be experiencing the comfort of God like no other. But it's also a story of disruption for others. But it's a good warning. God warns those he loves. And this warning leads to life. Father, I do pray that tonight as we consider your word that um, Holy Spirit you do work in our lives that only you can do we recognize that um, we fail and fall so short in trying just to affect change often in our lives and so would you help us to behold the risen Christ and all of his glory and all of his generosity help us to experience in a fresh way your mercy Lord that you would make us into a church of Lazaruses Lord the church who knows our poverty puts our whole weight and trust in you. Make us generous people for your name's sake. Here in Gresham and amongst every nation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.